0: Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Boar. And we're recording on a Saturday, which we almost never do.
1: Yeah, we usually take a Shabbat from, away from each other. Exactly. But, uh, but you needed
0: my comfort because you were you well, just wrestled with a 14-foot 14, tree. We put up
1: a 14-foot Christmas tree in front of our church. Uh, the best plan, laid plans of mice and men, but we, we've got it up. We got her up. So we'll see what happens.
0: I'll tell you, I am. A, we'll see how the podcast goes, but I, I like the Saturday recording. I feel like I got a lot done around the house. I, I, I feel like I'm in my zone, reflectively. Yeah,
1: yeah I'm. I'm. Yeah, covering from uh, Thanksgiving. I was working this morning, so doing some stuff uh, both for sermon and for consulting. So I was busy today as well.
0: You're a, you're a force to be reckoned with. I'm something, and of course. <laughs> uh, fidel castro has passed and
1: right yeah. one of our
0: listeners thought we would be especially <laughs> broken hearted by that yeah well do you know cuba de libra downtown it's near written yeah yeah i've been there yeah, on december nice. 4th they're offering free drinks free rum and coke one, during happy hour uh yeah. during uh castro's funeral <laughs>
1: Ah, uh, so these would be the Cubans that were not happy with him. Yeah, so I, <laughs> I, so I don't know what you're doing on December 4th. <laughs> you know, Ramen Coke. Plans, and I mean, those mojitos, I might actually... They have the, gra- the they have great mojitos. They there. do have guy. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun place, particularly when it's warm and it's all open and everything.
0: Yeah, it's great. Yeah. But, I mean, we could talk about the fact that Billy Bush is working again, reportedly. He's going to have a job with Breitbart Media.
1: Yeah, the universe just keeps getting better.
0: Yeah, it's... Uh, it, it's hey. Media, we're making media great again. Oh, my goodness. My
1: goodness. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, But Yeah. Sponsored
0: uh, by Tic Tacs, Breitbart Media. Sponsored by.
1: By Tic Tacs, yeah. The one and a half calorie. <laughs> by the way, I wish you all a, uh, tomorrow's the first Sunday of Advent, so happy new year from the church calendar. And Scott, you've launched a new uh, podcast that is uh, is uh, looking at the lectionary. Yeah.
0: It's called "Same Old Song," and I attribute that name to Jacob Smith, came up with it, uh, who I do the podcast with. And yeah, it's fun. It will. It's uh, us wrestling with the pastors under twenty five minutes or less. There we go. So it's one of the few podcasts I've actually put a time limit on.
1: So if you have not prepared your sermon for Advent one, shame on you. Number one, <laughs> okay. Shame, <laughs> shame, shame, shame. Yeah. Now you. None of you were that busy that you could not work on the sermon before tonight. But if you did that, uh, check out their podcast, and you can totally rip off their ideas.
0: Exactly. That's what that's what it's there for. But we we're going to we're actually going to talk about
1: metaphysics. There we go. Yeah, I love talking about metaphysics. It's- Matter of fact, since the election, I'm I'm maybe purely going to escape into the metaphysical realm. <laughs> exactly. I told you we actually recorded this once, and it didn't quite work out. And as I was leaving your house, I said, I'm going and getting my copy of Plotinus. That, that, that makes me feel... You know,
0: Plotinus, is, that's your safe space? That's
1: going to be my safe space for the next four years.
0: You know, it's interesting. I, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. I promise. All right. But so Donald Trump said the theater <laughs> should be a safe space. <laughs> <laughs> like when 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 the cast of Hamilton... Right, no, in, I, in no court, I, know the, I know the reference. Vic Pence. I, I thought, like, of all the people, so... If you voted for Donald Trump as a protest vote for political correctness, the culture of censorious political correctness, he is imploring us to have safe spaces, which I didn't think I would hear Donald Trump (laughs) be an advocate of the safe
1: space. That's right. Maybe he needs a puppy. It's a Play-Doh to get over. He uh, could. He could. He could. Anyway, uh, we uh, this uh, was in part inspired by a recent interview you did with. who we think is the greatest living theologian, Robert Jensen? Absolutely,
0: the great Robert Jensen, just unbelievable.
1: And he uh, he had an interesting quote uh, or an interesting statement that uh, I think is worth repeating.
0: We, uh, in the interview about revisionist, yeah, yeah he basically said that, something to the effect, right, that revisionist metaphysics was the most important or one of the most important projects the church could undertake. That that the church learning to interpret reality from the interior rationality of the gospel itself, as opposed to external frameworks, to borrowing too much from external frameworks and sources.
1: Yeah, and and um, I think it's a really interesting comment. And and I would argue that it may be the job of the church in every generation.
0: Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah,
1: but um, we probably should break down a little bit what we mean by metaphysics. Um,
0: I'm on the Stanford <laughs> encyclopedia of philosophy I mean, page must, which is it must,
1: awesome it is a great that actually is a great resource
0: yeah it's one of those things i mean the internet can be a mixed bag sometimes but stanford almost all the time is not, yeah, yeah. Uh, well <laughs> this is not sourced
1: by vladimir putin There we go this is, <laughs> this is from stanford well, the best we know it's not Putin. remember, has when,
0: remember when bush said, said man when I, I look into that man's eyes and i saw his soul and mccain said the only thing i see uh when I look into the man's eyes there are three letters K, G, and B. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my gosh.
0: He's very, very good news source. Yeah, it's very good. Uh so basically that we get the term, which as the Stanford encyclopedia says, it's notoriously hard to define. But our first use of the term that we can find, I think historically, is about a century after Aristotle's death. Uh an editor whose name is, in all probability, Andrew Nikinus of Rhodes, who I never learned about in philosophy, uh, titled. The, a,
1: he was one of his middle Platonists. He, he was he. Yeah,
0: yeah. Did With, you know that? Really? Yeah, yeah. That's a that okay. For, that's I'm incredibly impressed.
1: Yeah, I don't remember anything he said, but I do remember he was part of the middle. Well, middle Platonism is what is a catch all phrase for everything that happened between. Uh, uh, after Aristotle, Before until Plotinus. Plotinus.
0: Yeah. yeah. You know, there's a secondary source on Plotinus. I have on my shelf somewhere, but it's like one of the best first sentences I've ever heard in a book. Plotinus came up in an age that detested the body. And that's just <laughs> like the first sentence. And I'm like, man, that's how you write a first sentence. It's short, it's succinct, it kind of sets the stage.
1: By the way, Plotinus uh, is, is credited with beginning a movement that is called Neoplatonism he was a philosopher and mystic maybe a fellow student with origin of alexander there's uh there's some debate about that but they may uh have both studied under ammonius sacias i believe his name was the i think i that's i'm, I'm going deep in the files there but they studied under the same teacher actually i argued once that maybe you could argue origin is the father of neoplatonism but neoplatonism in the uh for the short answer is a kind of a mystical form of Platonism that actually kind of merges some Aristotelian logic and categories with some Platonic Platonic framework. But it was a it was a uh, um, a mystical approach to to the world. And uh, some people said it was a, at, a point, at sometimes it was a revi it was a rival to Christianity.
0: Wait, yeah, Phil Carey, who's at Eastern and teaches philosophy. Uh, and runs the honors college. I mean, he he's given some great lectures on these topics, and he actually says that that um, that if you look at early Christianity compared over and against something like a, like a lot of uh, post Platonic philosophy, especially the the in the era of Plotinus, and things when we th- th- that actually the Neoplatonism is much more spiritual in the sense of concerned about the eternal it is very sp- the immaterial the, the, the you know the, the soul like it, it's if you compare it to say the hebrew bible it, it, intensely more spiritual enough by spiritual we mean connected to what sometimes is defined as timeless realities non-physical realities right realities. so i mean and there's that tension there
1: yeah and it, and it is the pursuit to encounter the one which it would be I mean, for uh, you know what it is for Plato is one thing that's open to debate, but for Plotinus, it's certainly some form of divinity. Oh, uh, absolutely. Now, you know, one of the things uh, it might be helpful again, we're, we've but, already hey, jumped into this.
0: Can I just give my Aristotle? Yeah, give, you, give you your me meta- me. Meta- so metaphysics. So basically, stuff, right? what what did is he took the the last the the, the the four names for the branch of philosophy that he said is metaphysics. Uh, Aristotle called first philosophy, first science, wisdom. Uh, and theology, so first philosophy, first science, wisdom, and theology. Now it appears that that Andronicus of Rhodes titled them metaphysics, maybe to say, read the physics first. Right.
1: <laughs> it might have <laughs> been just like. Uh, like the instructions in the Psalms uh, for the choir director. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> play this in B flat. Play this in B flat. This is what this is what comes next. This is what's after physics. Yeah. yeah.
0: So we could call it the subject matter. If metaphysics could be defined as being as such, or the first cause of all things, or that which does not change. But you know the 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 really real first principle. You know, there's lots of but the study of ultimate reality. Maybe right. we could say,
1: and you know. Every generation who does theology, and, and really theology is engaging with the Bible to make sense of it in your time. You know, I mean, it's, well, it's the living faith, all right? In other words, how do I make sense of this faith that I've been Baptist, baptized into? And how do I read and interpret the Bible? And in spite of what uh, some people may say, no one, no one reads the Bible in a vacuum. So our worldview, our cosmology, our philosophical framework— um, even if you don't know you have a philosophical framework, you have one. It may be a uh, kind of a patch quilt. Most of us in this time, we take a little bit from here and there. But nonetheless, we don't read the Bible in uh, a vacuum. We we bring different kind of philosophical uh, worldviews to the text. Uh, there was a time, and particularly in the most critical times, when the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of Christology was really being formulated in the 4th and 5th century, um, providentially or whatever, however you want to say it, some of the best philosophical theological minds that the Church ever had were reflecting upon these very critical issues. Again, whether the time makes the people or the people make the time. And uh, the language of, of Platonic philosophy, late Platonic philosophy, Neoplatonic philosophy... Had a had an influence, a strong influence, in the way the Cappadocian Fathers, who were the people that ultimately championed, championed Athanasius's view of the Trinity, which is what we have in the Nicene Creed, and uh, Augustine, who's really the father of not only Western Christianity, but one could strongly argue that Western civilization is formed uh, through the baptized Platonism of Augustine. Absolutely,
0: yeah, and I think that. You know, Jensen says that the church fathers didn't so much hell, try to Hellenize the gospel. What they tried to do was baptize or Christianize the antecedent religious impulses that was in the theology or philosophical theology of Plato, Aristotle, and who followed. I mean, the, the, one of the things that's important to note, I think, is that that. That sort of greco Roman philosophy was theological, intensely theological yeah
1: i mean the the interesting particularly from the middle Plata- middle platonic period, which is the period in which Christianity is born uh up through late antiquity, philosophy was religious
0: yes absolutely. absolutely yeah, yeah absolutely no no the I always think about the pre Socratic. If you're Socrates, you've made it because there's a group of people that are pre you and And post post, post you. Yeah, I mean, that's, but I mean, for the folks (laughs) coming in the wake of Socrates and after, both before and after, you you could rightly call them demythologizers in the sense of the excesses of the mythology that was going on, you know, with centered around the Homeric deities, which in our first take we called humans behaving badly with right. really cool superpowers. That's right. <laughs> like, yeah. oftentimes the gods are worse than human beings. They, right. They're sort of like, well, it, well it's, it's... They're like, us-exaggerated,
1: you know, so yeah. they have all everything we have in excess.
0: Is it, is it the myth of Glycon or whatever in the Republic where they're talking about what would you do if you get the invisible ring and so what the invisible man is based on? You'd become this tyrannical person and you'd right. become... Right. So, like, on some level, it's the, the, the Homeric deities seem to be... What happens when you get the ring, except not just becoming invisible, you get all sorts of other cool superpowers. But the the Greco-Roman philosophical tradition that, again, in the wake of before and after Socrates is trying to say, hey, there's a better way at thinking about ultimate truth and the good life and the nature of the human condition than these Homeric myths. I mean, there's got to be. And and we've got to study, we've got to do this through critical reflection. And I think what the early church fathers had in common with, with the, that philosoph- philosophical tradition was the revulsion at pagan deities, which were right. primitive, uh, didn't inspire any forms of the good life, either right. ethically or intellectually. And so th- th- that's where I think where the symbiotic relationship Right. You may,
1: you may say it already happened in Judaism. I mean, in, in many ways, the, the rabbinic method is a Socratic method. And why Judaism was attractive to many people in the common era or the you know the first century and uh, the century in which Christianity is born was because they seemed to from antiquity get to the one God. I mean one can argue that polytheism is really somewhere underneath all that polytheism. there's a monism or there's a there's a single deity and in the ancient world, uh, antiquity was respected. So, uh, new and improved was not, an, was not attractive. You know, old and proven was, in the fact that from antiquity, from, or from bef- you know, pre-Socratic history or pre-Homeric history, the Jews had believed in one God, it, there was this kind of this amazing convergence uh, that, that really was a wonderful hotbed for the birth of the Christian faith.
0: Yeah, and I think that one thing Judaism has in common, right, with Platonic traditions, is there's a creator create there's a creator creation distinction to some yes, to, you know to, to a stronger degree. degree in Judaism probably than at least later Judaism than you find, but but it's there.
1: Like, well, it's you know it it's not there in a in a metaphysical <laughs> way, but in the, the prohibition against idolatry from the beginning, you can see once Judaism encounters Hellenism. Uh, then you can see it really is a natural marriage. And know. the
0: genderlessness of the God of Israel. Yes. That, that there's not, that the creation is not from he and his consort. In or spite consorts. of the King James Version. Exactly. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, so uh, kind of so to, to All that, that by way of uh, prologue. Prologue, yeah. And so, the, so I think it's helpful um, as even way as you're listening to this. Metaphysics can be seen as the worldview, the philosophical worldview one brings to the biblical text and the Christian faith.
0: Yeah, what you think is really real.
1: So, what, why is, so that's having done that definition and jumped all over historically. By the way, I think what Augustine and the Cappadocians do for Plato, what Aquinas did for Aristotle, uh, Jonathan Edwards did for Locke.
0: Oh, absolutely! Oh, absolutely! But
1: but the trouble is, yeah, the the philosophical girl was changing so much. I think if Jonathan Edwards, if it been a, if time had been a little slower, if if philosophical progress had moved a little slower, Jonathan Edwards, we might include him in in the pantheon there of of people who took philosophical the philosophical concepts of their time. And again, you have to understand Thomas Aquinas in the you know 13th century is dealing with. The revival of Aristotle, the Aristotle that's been rediscovered. Which was declared
0: heretical. I mean, like, I, I mean, you, it was, it, people saw, because part of the reason it was declared heretical was Aristotle thought, unless you could define something with limits, you can't study its being. Like, if something had, it was infinite, you right. couldn't discuss. So, you had to talk about the first mover, first call, you, you had to have, you had to be able to circumscribe no i mean much bigger than anything in reality but if if you that's the problem if you make that move with aristotle everybody thought well then theology's done cuz it it means you can't really have knowledge of an
1: infinite being or the other thing that they got in trouble with is they they sometimes some parts of aristotle talks about the eternal, that the yeah, the eternal eternal nature of history time oh uh,
0: yeah cuz creation is not right, right, is not right. so it's kind ex-nillion. of it's
1: ongoing ongoing but uh, it was funny in the uh, 13th century as, see what happened, what the Islamic world had had from, from, you know, the 6th and 7th century, Western Europe just rediscovered, you know, bits and pieces in the 11th and 12th centuries and 13th centuries, and so there would be, there'd be years where the, at the same time, there'd be a papal bull that would say, you can't study Aristotle, and Van Papal University's advertising, come here and study Aristotle. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. Just, when, when they were considering, after they were call, calling Aquinas a heretic, and then like a century later or so, right, they're considering canonizing him. And the, there was a question about the miracles. I forget which Pope said. Uh, yeah, I can show you where they are. They're on every page of the Summa.
1: <laughs> yeah, Well, right. And the human, yeah, right, exactly. And and the Christian humanist, um, you know, people not just like Calvin, but others, They put the they put Aristotle and Plato in heaven. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And uh, and Swingley put Hercules there too.
1: Yeah, Swingley. There's one other reason not to reject Swingley, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) one other. I mean, just many. But anyway, so to get back, we so metaphysics is your worldview. Uh, It has a strong philosophical history, and you know part of the critique over the years of say the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedon Creed or early Christianity or medieval Christianity that it was it was overly driven by philosophy. And that is a little bit of the rhetoric of the Reformation. Yes. Even and, though they were driven by philosophy as well, but it was a different philosophy. Maybe not so much Luther, but certainly Calvin was.
0: Yeah, and I think... And Zwingli as well, yeah. One of the things where you see this uh, put into relief is the Reformers, with their insistence, rightly, that we need a, bit, a more biblical understanding of the nature and, and, and being of God. But they're still so dependent on some of the philosophical tradition that actually the the problem becomes more pronounced with some of the Reformers. because it does, in absolutely. The, in, the, in the dilution of the medieval synthesis. Absolutely. And Jensen, that interview, also said he thought that was one of the biggest problems in the history of the Church, because with the dilution of, of the medieval synthesis, you separate the natural knowledge from the supernatural knowledge, and then eventually you get skeptical, and you just care about the natural matter Right,
1: and, and the medieval synthesis is really the Thomistic synthesis. You can say after, you know, everybody after Thomas, who didn't follow Thomas, tried to undo that. And that was actually, that was part of, and, and Martin Luther, by the way, went to the schools that were uh, known for, for instance, the theology that tried to de that took away that synthesis. So you have this radically independent God. As a matter of fact, I think Calvinist, extreme Calvinist, keeps the late medieval God. And that the uh late medieval God is so independent and so free that if tomorrow God decided that good was evil, God could do that.
0: Yeah. Is that kind of like extreme nominalism?
1: Yeah. And yeah. and that actually, I mean, that's the worldview of Zwingli. And then one could argue maybe Calvin a little bit as well.
0: I also like that Zwingli before the Reformation, just as he was a priest— just said to his bishop, look, I, I'm, I'm not going to make it celibate. I'll try not to have a bunch of kids or anything and be careful, <laughs> but I'm just not going
1: to, this is just not going to happen. Yeah, he did, he did get married secretly a few months before he became a reformer. Yeah, that's true. Uh,
0: so this is from Colin Gunton's, uh, well, I'm actually quoting from Clement, but he's quoting Clement of Alexandria.
1: Who was a, uh, yeah, he was an important. He was He was actually a great middle Platonist. Yeah. Second Christian century, thinker. right? Second century, yeah.
0: Uh Look at that. I got that right on the first try. The first try. Uh, Here he's talking about a perhaps dangerous, a perhaps dangerous tendency in the tradition. You see it this early, second century. He's talking about the relationship of the Old Testament to Christ and philosophy to Christ for the Greeks. Perchance, too, philosophy was given to the Greeks directly and primarily till the Lord should call the Greeks, for this was a schoolmaster to bring the Hellenic mind as the law was for the Hebrews to Christ. Philosophy, therefore, was a preparation, paving the way for him who is perfected in Christ. And then Gutton says, in in that passage, the Old Testament is implicitly downgraded in two ways. Narrowed to its function it is important for the New Testament far more than is suggested by the one allusion to, to a saying of Paul to be found there. And relativized by being reduced, or at least in this respect, to an equality of function the philosophy of the Greeks. The distortion finds its way into the mainstream of the Western tradition in words contained in the Requiem, Teste Teste David et Silibia. Uh, We encounter a juxtaposition in parallel Old Testament and pagan philosophy, which surely should not be.
1: Well, here is a positive thing to say about what Clement's project was and a negative thing. On one sense, and and I've never been able to find who said this first, and I I don't know anyone... If you know who said this first, give send us the reference. Absolutely. But the idea that all truth is God's truth, it would make sense if Clement said that, but I don't remember reading it in Clement. But it, but Clement's project certainly would say all truth is God's truth. Okay, that's the positive thing. Absolutely. The negative thing in this, uh, in the second century, first of all, we had the Bar Kokobo revolt, where over probably a million plus Jews were killed. A whole Roman legion was wiped out by the Jewish revolt, and uh, this really was probably the. I mean, there are, there are vestiges of Jewish Christian churches. You know, we see some of the vestiges into the fifth century, but this is a death nail. And there were a lot of good reasons for Christians, who are by now are vastly majority Gentile movement, to distance themselves from from the Jewish uh, antecedents. And I think that's that's one dynamic also. Jews and Christians are competing against each other in the public square. There are actually disputations going on, debates about between Jews and Gentiles as to Jews and Christians as to what's the truth. And if you read Tertullian, for instance, and other sources, it seems like the Jews frequently won those public debates. (laughs) So that's a little bit of the backdrop there. You know, again, anti-Semitism has not yet been born in the church. You have to see it in the second century. Jews and Christians are competing rival versions of what Christians claim is the same history. Only they've they are saying that we are the right version of it. So that's a little bit of the backdrop of what Clinton's doing. Clement is doing. You're on fire today. This is like me talking about comic book. Like you're I mean you are on fire. You're on point today, my friend you have you have touched deep into the recesses of my memory. I'm into this. This yeah. is
0: great. Uh yeah so I think you know another thing that Gunton points out. Well, two things, I think, that, and then we'll, maybe we'll get back to Jensen, but um, he says that he quotes um, Charles Hodge saying this, that uh, it, it, there's one place uh, in, in the first part of his systematic theology entitled Theology Proper, where he says, theism is the doctrine of an extra-mundane personal God, the creator, preserver, and governor of the world. And then the second quote, which Gunt wants to quote at greater length, appears about 150 pages later. <laughs> Probably the, the Best definition of God ever penned by man is that given in the Westminster Catechism. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. This is a true definition, for it states the class of beings to which God is to be referred. He is spirit, and he is distinguished from all other spirits, and that he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, and perfection. It is also a complete definition insofar it as it is an exhaustive statement of the contents of our idea of God. And then Gunton's commentary is, it is not that we should necessarily want to deny the attribution of most of, the qualities of these <laughs> qualities to God, nor is it that I am unaware of the fact that Hodge delimits carefully what he means by definition. He has elsewhere much more to say about God. It is rather a matter of what is left out, in particular what Robert Latham has recently pointed out, that Hodge does not get around to suggesting that God is triune Until after two hundred and fifty pages of detailed exposition of the doctrine of God, of theological dissatisfaction, Gunton says, with this volumes could be written.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, so 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 you're saying, yeah, Hodge is pseudo (laughs) Dionysius. Well, yeah, Yeah, this is—I mean,
0: this is the problem where when you let when you let loose on your understanding of God, adopting uncritically from what Jensen says is—we have to understand. Christianity always, in its missionary encounters, analyzes, reflects its best dialogues with mm-hmm. the religious traditions it finds itself in. But you know, Jensen points out these are religious traditions. Right. They're not neutral. It's not natural. It's not science. It's not like right. it's, it's. It's not. It, it, but Jensen's fear is we've baptized them. Right. And as a result, oftentimes we've come up with a less than baptized understanding of God because if God. Because if you think like these terms, which you wouldn't need necessarily the Bible to get any of that. I mean, you you, you could you could get that from certain yeah you know, like Calvinistic you know, sure. speculation.
1: Well, and, and the interesting thing is, that, and I think Calvinism has a particular tendency to go down this road because they talk about the absolute sovereignty of God in ways that have very little to do with biblical understandings of election, and 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 it, and it has very little to do with really uh, how we see God. Presented in God's fullness in in the text, it's really interesting because I because I know I I I do think uh, legitimately I think the God of the hyper of the hyper Calvinist is really not that far from the stoic stoic God, or or a little bit of Manichaean at times. It, it's really interesting. I listened to music and was one of those Christian music stations where they're doing pop songs, you know, which is like the absolute worst combination. But I I lingered long enough to hear, you know, uh, have yourself a merry little Christmas. Through the years, we'll always be together if the fates permit. That's how they, yeah. The Christian version said, "Through the years, we'll always be together if the Lord permits." And I go, "No." <laughs> in other words, <laughs> this is you just. This is what's not going on with the Christian faith in terms insert, of
0: insert Lord here. <laughs> oh my
1: heavens! You know the idea is the Lord is not to be equated with fatalism, but but people tend to. It's it's a natural tendency. Uh, for whatever reason, fatalism gives people comfort, and uh, I think a lot of times what people call providence is actually a pagan fatalism, but that's another podcast. So uh, let's shift a little bit to the contemporary time, because I mean, you know, what is our metaphysics? In in the original version of this, uh, you know, I think, for instance, the therapeutic model of the human being has become the metaphysics of the contemporary church,
0: I do think that Nietzsche is right on almost everything, at least prophetically. I mean, maybe not normatively, but as rhetorically. Far as that's rhetor- okay, let's get and, him rhetorical. And as he predicts things, I mean, like he's just a predictor of trends. Yeah, and he said that psychology would replace theology as the queen of the science, and that that has happened. I mean, I feel like that's almost indisputable. It doesn't matter what field you're in, like if you're in evolutionary biology, you're talking right. about so psychology. It doesn't matter right. if you're in philosophy. It doesn't matter if you're in history. Every, and I mean, and I'm not necessarily saying it's the worst thing in the world, but it just is the case. I, I think that, that that psychology is so much of how we transact right. and self-understanding and understanding of others, I mean, hands down.
1: Well, you know, when I was trying to teach worldview, or at least philosophically, trying to give people intro metaphysics, you know, and in, in my church history classes, because uh, most people don't have a background in this, and that's, that's unfortunate because you really you, you kind of need to know some philosophy to do theology, like a lot of philosophy.
0: And you had the benefit of studying with Diogenes Allen at Princeton, did, who was yeah. the one of the greats at this yes, at this at, to, at, at building a bridge, right, and creating the relationship and, necessary.
1: And also being a church story, you just to make sense of it. I mean, I had to, I had to backfill my philosophy heavy duty when I was in seminary and in, in my doctoral work. But um, in my with my students, I used to say, okay, how many of you think? That God wants you to have a good self image And everybody would raise their hand. Okay. And then I would say, and this is a Baptist seminary, at least it's kind of, it was affiliated with the Baptist, American Baptist. Baptist Baptist-ish. Ish, yeah. Emphasis on ish. But I would say, and then I would say, okay, where in the Bible does it teach that? And of course, nobody could come up with a Bible verse, but we have the psychological idea of what it means to be well. I mean, in other words... We've replaced Shalom, you know, if you would, the Hebrew idea that some of the early church seems to hold on to with this idea of self-actualization of feeling good about yourself. You know, the the, the 20th century, which has you know been brought into the 21st century model of what psychological health is, is really the new metaphysics. Uh, I was a psychology major undergraduate and did some graduate stuff in it as well. The good news is that that kind of is coherent you know when you know so much so much of what we get in preaching across the country is you know therapeutic in its approach the good news is that's where people are the bad news is uh, there are volumes written of every psychological theory theory that disproves the theory and so uh, matter of fact psych- you know serious psychology people are trying to become neuropsychologists you know they're trying to study the brain because they want to become more science there's a reason in most universities the psychology department was put in the buildings where the religion department used to be. <laughs> They're not the best buildings on campus because it is a, it is a, it is a, there is it is a pseudo at best, unless you're dealing with the pure neurological brain stuff. Uh, that's what it is at best, and uh, the same weaknesses that it has as a science or a, an approach to life gets carried into all those. Preachers and theologies that try to merge the two things, well,
0: or more positively, we could say it, that it's it, it might resemble philosophy more than it resembles hard sciences, which doesn't mean it's it's not efficacious or helpful. But no. but, but it doesn't mean that it, it's different than an experiment that is repeated with a with a super collider.
1: Right. Well, I would just just like. My study of philosophy has been greatly helpful in my own theological formation. My background in psychology has been grateful, very helpful in the kind of spiritual direction and counseling I've done over the years in a wide range of areas as a pastor. So I don't—I I, am I, thankful for the major, but I have a strong sense of the limitations of the discipline.
0: Well, let, let me let me throw in a little more Jensen you know, as we begin to wind down. It's a long podcast, That's all right. I mean, I, I, well, yeah, I think it's, uh, it fits the subject matter. Uh, here's a statement from Jensen on Karl Barth. Barth did not declare independence from the philosophers because philosophy is something so different from theology that it must be kept at arm's length. His reason was exactly the opposite. He refused to depend on the official philosophers because what they offered to do for him, he thought he should do for himself in conversation with them, when that seemed likely to help. The kirchliche Dogmatic or the church dogmatics, is an enormous attempt to interpret all reality by the fact of Christ. Indeed, it can be read as the first truly major system of Western metaphysics since the collapse of Hegelianism. Wow. I, I, yeah, I mean, I think that that's insightful.
1: Right, and I, and I think theology, at its best, has always been Christocentric. I mean Augustine is a really is a Christocentric theologian uh and uh, Calvin the earlier editions of the institute I think were better because they were more Christocentric in other words Christ is the center I mean that's why we are we are Christians and and that should be the lens by which we um by by which we we look at things and you know
0: are. And Christ as Jew, it makes Israel centric too. I mean, like what yes, absolutely. I, what yes. I think is like, you know, for all their greatness, the two two of the great treatises on the incarnation, Athanasius on the incarnation in the fourth century, and Anselm Cur Deus homo you know, why did God become man in the twelfth century? Le- well, or eleventh, yeah. 12th, well, 1100s. He
1: overlaps. Overlap. Okay. It might be the early 12th century. There yeah. you
0: go. I, I've almost got two dates right Yeah, there, you're good. That's good. Uh, I get better right around 1800 yep. or something. I get a little better on certain things. Yeah. It
1: starts getting a little fuzzy once we get out of American history exactly. at that age exactly. for me. Yeah.
0: yeah it, you know, neither of their understandings of the reconciliation wrought by God in Christ require the Old Testament to work. Right. No. And they, th- their lie, I mean, Jesus could have been a Mexican, Chinese from Chicago, Canadian, you know, from Norway or Zimbabwe. So there's not a preservation of the uniqueness. So to say it's Christocentric is also Israel-centric. Right,
1: yeah, no, because absolutely. Because
0: Jesus is first the Messiah of Israel Christ. and then the world.
1: <laughs> I, you know, I try often, to, I mean, Christ is such a part of my language and my piety. I do when I'm in teaching and and preaching, I try to always translate that Messiah, just to kind of keep that connection. And I think because when I mean, if you have a Christocentric approach to a worldview, you know, we believe that that's, you know, heaven and earth are in a strange, you know, encounter there in a in a way that it never, you know, in a way that's unique. I mean, I think Bonhoeffer somewhere in his ethics says that the incarnation changes everything. Yeah. God becoming human changes everything, which is very appropriate on this, um on this Saturday before Advent. And uh you know this as we have been talking about this metaphysical. I, I started reading earlier, and I picked it up as, and uh, earlier this uh, fall, and I picked it up again uh, last night. A really an amazing book. It's um, it's called When Breath Becomes Air, and it was written by the late Paul Kalanithi. I think is how you pronounce his name.
0: I've heard of this book.
1: It's an amazing book. It, it makes the top hundred of New York Times notable books for this year and of uh, two thousand sixteen, and. Uh, it's 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 published posthumously. He he dies. He's in his late thirties. He's a brilliant neurosurgeon, and in his last year, he doesn't ever he ever never gets to quite uh, practice his medicine because he's still in study in preparation. He uh, he develops uh, I believe it's l- uh, lung cancer, and he dies from it. And so he's writing this memoir as he knows he's dying, which makes it even more poignant. And one of the things he, a couple different times, he, you know, and he's a deeply spiritual man. He, You know, he uh, is a, uh, he's Catholic, and uh, and he brings that spirituality. Matter of fact, he said, if I had figured this out earlier, I may have been a minister, or, you know, a priest, he said. But why he became a neurosurgeon is because he said, I want to know what really matters. Mm. And he talks about, he talks about this incident, and he's looking at this incident through the lenses of knowing that he's dying, and he says, you know, I wish I just, you know, if I have one regret, I have. I wish I could have been constantly more present to my patients. But as a neurosurgeon, he says, I need to understand the gravity of what I'm doing here. Because when I, I'm talking to people before we do the surgery, I'm dealing with who they who they really are. And if you would be, I'm touching their very souls. And he and I don't know if he used the word holy, but he used the word. That's a very he used the word that that's a holy thing. That I hold and and what's interesting to me uh, the old metaphysics of you know the the, uh, the body being a you know the soul and the body the spirit body being different uh has some real problems at least in the in this where we're at right now in terms of when it comes to looking at what happens with you know brain activity you know what we can we can even see what happens in a brain when people are praying or meditating, so we're learning more. Uh, about what it really makes us to be human what we there's there's on one level what makes us human, our personality, what we used to call our soul it is an, is one part electrical you know electrical transmissions that are going on with in the gray matter of it 's a physiological it is a it is a material process now what 's beautiful about this book is I think you know and I would encourage it because I think he 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 is approaching. <laughs> this highly specialized uh physical science from what I would call a metaphysical approach he's not reducing in other just because he know and he you know he knew what makes people tick, he knew what part of the brain what things were gonna happen, but he didn't reduce the human being to merely that, and I think in some levels the christocentric project of Bart or of any good theology um uh, that was a corrective in the twentieth century. I think it's a it it really has set the table um, for us to to recapture, you know, really was it mean for spirituality to have flesh and blood around it.
0: Yeah, and that that is the power of the incarnation, right? And this is one of Jensen's biggest concerns: is that if God is opposed to time in, in an adversarial way, if what divinity means is to be without time, then how do you say that God became human? Which I mean, time is so much at the heart of who we are. It's one of the reasons we have the church calendar, because time, how we perceive reality is so shaped by how we mark time. Um, one last short Jensen quote, which uh, I think is relevant to what you just said. The fathers did not, as it is still, often pre- is still often supposed, Hellenize the evangel or the gospel. They didn't like make it Greco-Roman. They labored to evangelize their own antecedent Hellenism And succeeded remarkably, if not fully. And so I think that Gen Zs, you know, there's still some uh, unbaptized, antecedent religious impulses and philosophical perspectives. And I think that's always the right move, right? Like if we if we we don't try to sort of psychologize the gospel or take whatever current metaphysical trend and put it. What we do try to do is from the interior mystery, and yet rationality of the Christ event the good news the gospel then we look and see what truths we find out there in psychology or science or neuroscience that we don't we, we don't let those things define the mystery of the gospel but through the mystery of the gospel we see the mysterious truths that are reflected even outside of it
1: yeah you know we often talk about it as we you know as we look at Luke chapter 2 and that account of the birth of Jesus, it, it's 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 raw. You know, you've got shepherds, it's in a cave. Uh, you you have a young woman giving birth, uh, surrounded by you know the cold, and and it's a very, it's and it's you know he puts it in historical context and reigns and things like that. And it, it's a, it, and it's we romanticize it, but it's a it's a messy entering of God into history. I would argue on a metaphysical level. When the writer of John, you know, says the Logos became flesh, um, it's hard to know. You can't know his intent, but because that word is so loaded, and because I think of the underlying sophistication of the thought in John's gospel, uh, the Greek is primitive, but the thinking is 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 profound. I think he takes metaphysics and makes it messy. In some levels, it's a metaphysical move that moves metaphysical reality into a manure-surrounded cave as well. And, and
0: like Mary, we should ponder those things in our heart.
1: Amen.
2: Many years ago He looked out through a glassless window All that he could see was Babylon Beautiful green fields and dreams Learned to measure the stars But there was a worry In his heart Is it?